It is good to be with you and those of you that are watching from our different locations, those of you joining us online, it's good to be gathered uh, under uh, God's word. We're going to be in Isaiah 55. So if you have a Bible uh, or iPad or whatever you got with you, uh, go ahead and make your way to Isaiah 55. If you don't have anything, uh, then we'll have the verses up on screen for us to follow together. This is one of the most beautiful, one of the most amazing passages in all the Old Testament. And I really want to draw our hearts to meditate on what God has to say to us, especially as we get ready to prepare for Easter Sunday, Resurrection Sunday. This is the Christian Super Bowl. This is the high point in the life of any church. And really, it shouldn't just have to be once a year. It really is every Sunday. This is why New Covenant Christians began to gather on Sunday, because every Sunday is Resurrection Sunday. Amen. Like every, every Sunday should feel like a Super Bowl celebration because Jesus has won the victory over Satan, sin, and death. And that means that in and through him, we too can experience that victory for all of eternity. And so as we get ready to turn the corner into Holy Week, as we gather for prayer and for worship Friday in uh, Good Friday, uh, as we go into Easter Sunday and we celebrate the resurrection of Jesus, I want our hearts to hear from God, and I want us to prepare in two specific ways. And so I'm just telling you up front that I'm going to ask you to do one of two things in response to this message. If you are not a Christian, I want to ask you today, you don't have to wait for Easter Sunday. I want to ask you today to put your trust in Jesus. Not in response to what I have to say, but in response to what God has to say to you in his word. And if you are a Christian, you're a follower of Jesus, then I want to ask you today, I want to invite you to take a step this week to help someone else put their trust in Jesus, to help them interact with the God that you've come to love and worship and serve, to hear the gospel and to respond with repentance and faith. So if you're not a Christian Man, you're invited to trust in Jesus today. If you are a Christian, you're invited to join God in his work of drawing people into this amazing relationship that's available through Jesus. And so let me read Isaiah 55. We're going to read the whole chapter. There is so much in this chapter. I promise I could preach for three hours, and I'm not going to. Um, But there is so much in these verses. So I want to read the whole chapter, and then we will begin to kind of pick it apart together. Verse 1, Isaiah 55. Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. And he who has no money, come, buy and eat. Come, buy wine and milk without money and without price. Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread and your labor for that which does not satisfy? Incline your ear and come to me here that your soul may live and I will make with you an everlasting covenant, my steadfast, sure love for David. Behold, I make him a witness to the peoples, a leader and commander for the peoples. Behold, you shall call a nation that you do not know and a nation that did not know you shall run to you because of the Lord your God and of the Holy One of Israel for he has glorified you. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord that he may have compassion on him. 
and to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. For as the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return there, but water the earth, making it bring forth and sprout, giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so my word, so shall my word be that goes out of my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose, and it shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. For you shall go out in joy and be led forth in peace. The mountains and the hills before you shall break forth into singing, and all the trees of the field shall clap their hands. Instead of the thorns shall come up the cypress. Instead of the briar shall come up the myrtle, and it shall make a name for the Lord, an everlasting sign that shall not be cut off. If you're new to the Bible, we're jumping in midstream here. This is Isaiah 55, chapter 55. There's 54 chapters prior to this, and there's a whole lot that's been happening, but let me basically summarize it for you here. God's people have forsaken him. They've abandoned him. These people who had this opportunity to enjoy God's covenant love for all of eternity, they walked away from God because they looked out into the world and they thought they saw things that were better than God. They saw idols. They saw these things that promised abundant life. And so they turned away from God and began to chase these other things. And so as God promised, they experience God's temporary judgment as God sends them uh, into exile in Babylon. And then as they're experiencing the consequences of distance from God, the consequences of breaking covenant with God, as they're experiencing the temporary judgment of God, God, through his prophet, begins to send forth a sound of hope. Light begins to flicker at the end of the tunnel. God is saying to his people, it's not too late. You abandoned me, but I have not abandoned you. I've still made a way for you to come back. And this in Isaiah 55 is an invitation for people, and what we'll see in a moment is for all people to receive and enjoy the covenant love of God. But it's also a call for God's people to spread that invitation so that others can enjoy God's love. And you see that clearly in verse 3. So verse 3 says, incline your ear and come to me. Hear that your soul may live, and I will make with you, and this is so important, you can circle this in your Bible, an everlasting covenant, my steadfast, sure love for David. In other words, it's a, it's a covenant that is similar to the covenant I made with King David. It's a covenant of my steadfast, my faithful, my consistent, my persistent, sure, it's certain, guaranteed love. Verse 4, he says, Behold, I made him, David, a witness to the peoples, a leader and commander for the peoples. And what's happening here is God chose David, this unlikely shepherd boy, to become the greatest king in all of Israel's history. And then God made a covenant with David. It's what Bible scholars call the Davidic covenant. So let me just briefly explain that. God makes several different covenants with his people throughout the Bible. 
And two of the most important covenants, as you read throughout the, the Old Testament, are the Davidic covenant and an earlier covenant called the Abrahamic covenant. Now, I know this is a little bit of school for you, but just hang in here with me. It'll all come together and make sense. Let me just give you this context. When God made a covenant with Abraham, you can read about this in Genesis 12, 15, and 17. When God made a covenant with Abraham, he promised that not only would he multiply Abraham's family into a nation, but that he would use Abraham's family, the ancient Jews, to bless people from other nations. And that blessing was that people from every nation would be invited to enjoy God's grace, to to experience God's covenant love as sons and daughters in God's family, as citizens in God's kingdom. And so fast forward generations later, and God makes a promise to one of Abraham's descendants, King David. And this is where God's plan gets even more specific. How will God bring blessing to all nations? Well, in 2 Samuel chapter 7, God promises to give one of David's descendants an eternal kingdom, a kingdom made up of people from all nations. So God says to David, David, you're going to have a son. You're going to have a descendant. And that descendant is going to become a king and not just a king of a temporary kingdom. That king is going to become a king of an eternal kingdom made up of people from all nations. This is the promise of a coming Messiah. And so put it all together. In the Abrahamic covenant, God says, Abraham, I'm going to bless all nations through your descendants. And then generations later, God comes to King David, one of Abraham's descendants, and says to him in the Davidic covenant, King David, I'm going to raise up another king, a Messiah king from your family, and this king will reign over an eternal kingdom made up of people from all nations. And we see echoes of the Davidic covenant all throughout the rest of the Old Testament, including here in the book of Isaiah. You've probably read this passage before around Christmas time, Isaiah chapter 9. Verses 6 and 7, listen to this prophecy. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government, that's kingdom language, will be on his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the greatness of his government and peace, there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. The zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. Who's going to accomplish this? King David? No. The people of Israel? No. God himself, his zeal for his own glory, his faithfulness to his own promises, God himself will accomplish this. And when you flip over to the, from the Old Testament to the New Testament, this is why there's so much excitement and anticipation when Jesus is born. So if you're um, in middle school or elementary school and you're reading through the Bible or you're new to the Bible and you want to skip over the genealogies in the, in the New Testament, let me tell you why you shouldn't skip over those genealogies. Because those first few chapters in the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, they're tying the whole Bible together. And so when you flip it over to the New Testament, there's so much excitement when Jesus is born because of the Davidic covenant. Listen to how Matthew starts his gospel account. Matthew chapter 1, verse 1. It says, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. This is God fulfilling his promises. 
And in Luke's account, Luke chapter 1, verse, verse 31, an angel appears to Mary and says, listen to verse 31, and behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father, David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. And listen, this is what Easter is all about. And you see this later when the Apostle Paul quotes from Isaiah 55 and from 2 Samuel 7, the Davidic covenant in Acts chapter 13, verse 32. When Paul is preaching, when he is bearing witness to the gospel, look at what he says in verse 32. He says, and we bring you the good news that what God promised to the fathers This he has fulfilled to us, their children, by raising Jesus. Verse 34, he says, and for the fact that he was that he raised him from the dead, no more to return to corruption. Paul is saying, you want to know what the resurrection is about? Listen to how Paul explains it. He says, God has spoken in this way. I will give you talking to the resurrected son of God. I will give you the holy and sure blessings of David. So God, through the prophet Isaiah, is reminding his people of the Davidic covenant. That God had promised that he was going to raise up this Messiah king who would reign over this eternal kingdom, this kingdom that's made up of people from all nations. And ultimately, that promise is fulfilled in the coming of Jesus, the king of kings and the Lord of lords. And so back to Isaiah 55, that's why it says in verse 5, behold, you shall call a nation that you do not know. There are nations beyond you, nation of Israel. So now God's people are the ones inviting others. And God says, a nation that did not know you shall run to you. Why? Because you're so amazing? Absolutely not. They'll run to you because of the Lord your God and of the Holy One of Israel, for he has glorified you. In other words, people of God, God has chosen you as his instruments to bring blessing to all people to bring salvation, to invite people into his kingdom, to experience his covenant love. God is going to use his covenant people, Abraham's descendants, and ultimately through Jesus, the church, to draw people from other nations to himself. And this is why we send each other out every single week with the Great Commission, because think about what we recite to one another every week. And if you're new to our church, you're new to joining us online, you'll hear us send one another out with these words at the end of this gathering. Matthew 28, verse 18, Jesus himself says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. That's kingdom talk. That's I am the king of kings. I've been given all authority in heaven and on earth. Verse 19, therefore... Go and make disciples, where? Of all nations, of all nations. Listen, God says 
to everyone who is a follower of Jesus. God says to everyone who has put their trust in Christ, believe the gospel, been born again to everyone who says, I'm a son, I'm a daughter of God through Jesus. God invites you. He has invited you not only, not only to be saved and to enjoy his covenant love, but he also invites you to join in, to participate in his mission. Your call to Jesus is a call also to the mission of Jesus. You will never understand your purpose until you understand God's mission. And this is why, partly why, I wanted us to reflect on this text as we prepare for Easter Sunday next week. Because we know, we know in our own lives, like some of us who grew up in church, like maybe you don't go to church every Sunday but you're definitely going to go to church on Easter Sunday. Or at least your mom is going to drag you there. And many of us know, even before we were following Jesus, if we were curious or we were exploring Christianity, maybe we would turn down our friends to come to church on other weeks. But around Easter, ah, we're a little bit curious. Ah, sure, I'll go with you on Easter Sunday. We know that Easter is not just a great opportunity for us to celebrate what God has done in resurrecting Jesus from the grave, but it's also such an incredible opportunity for us to invite others to experience what we've experienced in putting our trust in the resurrected Lord. And so if you're a Christian, I want you to hear this sermon as recruitment. That God is giving you an opportunity this week in some specific ways to help people understand who Jesus really is, to help people truly understand the gospel as we celebrate the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And so I want to invite you to do two specific things, and I want to give you some reasons why. I want to invite you this week. This is what I've already done. This is very, very specific. I want to invite you to put a reminder in your phone for every day, starting today, for every day this week at 9 p.m. I just picked that. I picked it because you've probably done everything you got to do, but you probably haven't gone to sleep yet unless you're old like me. But 9 p.m., you can pick 4 a.m. if you want for all y'all people who wake up before God told you to wake up. Whatever time you want, set a reminder on your phone every single day to pray intentionally for God to draw people to himself this Easter. Through our church family here at McLean Bible Church, through other gospel preaching churches in our area and all over the world, I want you to put some skin in the game. I want you to not just be a spectator on Easter Sunday, but for you to show up on Easter Sunday in this room at our locations or tuning in online from your home next Sunday, that you won't just be sitting as a passive spectator, but you will be sitting as a participant anticipating God to do his work because you've been praying all week. I want to invite you, if you're a follower of Jesus, to put a reminder in your phone every day this week. I put it in mine at 9 p.m. to pray for God to move, for revival this coming Sunday, for God to do what we cannot do in our own strength and in our own power, to do what he did for us, to raise people who are spiritually dead to brand new resurrection life. And I want you to also pray specifically for the people in your life who have not yet trusted in Jesus. The people whose heart are the most hardened, the people who are most 
rebellious against God, the people who are most skeptical, the people who mock the gospel. Nothing is too hard for God. Nothing is too hard for God. And so we pray fervently this week that God will move and that God will work. So pray. Secondly, invite. I want you to pray and invite. I want you this week to invite people that you know who would be encouraged, other Christians that maybe aren't connected to a church right now or their church isn't meeting uh, in person. They don't have anything going online. Invite other Christians to celebrate with us. But I also want you to invite people who are exploring Christianity or quite frankly, aren't even exploring Christianity. I want you to invite them to come to one of our locations or tune in online so that they can hear the preached word of God, the gospel, so they can see the gospel celebrated in our singing, in our worship, in the stories that we're going to tell next week of how God has changed people's lives. I want to encourage you to pray and invite because God is inviting you to help spread his invitation for others to enjoy his covenant love. And if you're here or you're watching and you're not a Christian, you're not a follower of Jesus, God's invitation for you is not to wait for Easter. There's nothing magical about Easter Sunday. The gospel is available to you right now. The spirit is at work through his word today. Today can be the day of salvation for you. I want to invite you to put your trust in Jesus today so that next week for you is a celebration of what God has done in your life. And so here's what I want us to do in the time that we have left. I want to answer for you because I know, I know for many of us, this week is going to get busy. There's going to be people that we feel prompted to invite or to, to talk about Jesus with or to share the gospel with. And, and we're going we're gonna to either be distracted, we're going to be afraid, We're going to doubt that God could actually use us to do anything in this person's life. I want to answer for you why. Why should you work to help spread God's invitation that we see here in Isaiah 55? Why should you do it? Why am I talking to you about the people in your life and not just talking to everybody around you? Why should you personally invest in? And help with spreading this great invitation that we see in Isaiah 55. And if you're not a Christian, why should you accept this invitation? Like right now, why should you do it? With all the questions that you still have in your mind, all the things that don't make sense to you in the Bible, why should you accept God's invitation that he's extending to you in this chapter? Why should you expect that? Four reasons. Here's number one. Because God's love is all satisfying. God's love is all satisfying. And if you're a Christian, you've experienced this love and you want the people around you to experience this love. God wants everyone to enjoy his love. God is saying in Isaiah 55 to his people here who have gone astray from him, he's saying, I'm inviting you to enjoy the same kind of covenant love that King David enjoyed. This relationship that's based on and sustained by my faithful love, not your human ability. And look at how God describes that love in verse 1. He says, come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. And he who has no money, come by and eat. I want you to listen to these words. I know it's poetic and it's beautiful, but it's real. He says, come, buy wine and milk without money and without price, which doesn't even make any sense. 
He says, why do you spend your money? This is what God is saying to you if you're not a follower of Jesus. This is what God said to me as a college student at University of Maryland. This is what God wants to say to people around us and far from us. Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread and your labor for that which does not satisfy? We are constantly chasing things that were never designed to satisfy us. And one evidence that we live in a fallen world is the fact that things that we think will quench our thirst actually only end up making us more thirsty. Like we say this stuff all the time, and I know if you're exploring Christianity, you've heard the cliches, right? You have a God-shaped hole in your heart and nothing in this world can satisfy. And some of y'all are like, actually, (laughs) actually, Sex really does satisfy. Actually, the accolades I get in my industry, they really do satisfy because I've worked hard. I've worked hard to get to where I am. It really does. Actually, that car in the garage that I only take out on weekends like this weekend where it, was, it felt like heaven outside, actually, it is incredibly satisfying when you drop that top and the breeze is going through whatever hair you have left. It is actually extraordinarily sat. Actually, it is very, very satisfying to finally get to a place in my life where I can look at my bank account without anxiety, where I can actually look at my bank account and I don't even know what to do with all my money. And some of y'all are like, please, can can that be me? Some of us are like, no, 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 actually the things of this world are really satisfying. But we all know, we know, we know from our personal experience that the things we think will quench our thirst actually only end up making us more thirsty. It doesn't satisfy the thirst. It just makes it worse. We want more and more and more. It doesn't satisfy. We get this, and then we compare it to what this person has, and we feel like we need more, and we need more, and we need more. Because the things of this world, apart from God, were never meant. They were never designed to ultimately satisfy us. But God is saying, I'm the only one who can satisfy you. He says, come, get water. Like, I'm here, I'm, I want to quench your thirst. He says, come, get milk. I want to strengthen you. Come, get wine. I want to bring you joy and celebration. I want to gladden your heart. But there's something in these verses that just doesn't make sense. And we already pointed it out when we were reading. It's weird language. He says, he who has no money, and you would expect him to say, he who has no money, come and eat. That makes sense. That's what I still do at almost 40 years old when my parents invite us to go to dinner. I come and I'm expecting my parents to pay for the whole meal. That makes perfect sense. He who has no money, come and eat. That's not what God says through Isaiah. God says, he who has no money, come buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money and without price. This doesn't make any sense. Is that just a, is that a scribal error? What's happening here? No, 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 no. I I think God through Isaiah is being very intentional and he's bringing out this tension, this tension that is only ultimately resolved in the gospel. That you and I owe a debt because of our sin against God. 
And we cannot pay that debt in and of ourselves. We can't pay it through our good works. Our good works won't balance out our bad works. We cannot earn our way into God's acceptance, into God's kingdom. But the payment is still due. We can't earn our way into the blessings of God and the goodness of God, but we still want to experience those things. So how do you come and buy something when you don't have any money? And God says, I'm so glad you asked. And this is how I have come to kind of understand this. It's like when you were growing up, I know when I was growing up, my dad used to always be so mad that we didn't turn the lights off in the house. I know it's triggering for some of y'all parents. He, we'd be in the garage ready to go, and he'd be like, mm-mm. He'd just come outside, and he'd be like, no, get out the car. Go upstairs and turn your light off. I'm like, Dad, if you saw my light on upstairs, you could Anyway, that's a whole, nother, a whole nother story. He used to get so angry, and I never understood it until I had children. They'd just be walking around like light is just out here free. It's not. It feels like it is, but it's not. Like my kids enjoy something that they didn't pay for. It feels free to them, and it is free to them, but it's not free. See, salvation is free to you, but it's not free. This is what God reveals in Isaiah 53, that that he would send someone who would pay the price that we owe. And Jesus died on the cross for our sins so that he could pay the penalty that we deserve. He paid for our sins with his shed blood on the cross. And this is the only way, this is why this can't make sense until you flip over into the New Testament because God says to us, now I want you to buy something with money that you don't have. You're buying it on credit that was earned by somebody else, by the blood of Jesus Christ on your behalf. God's love is all satisfying. It's satisfying because it's the only thing that's designed to actually fill our hearts and our souls, but it becomes even more satisfying when we realize that we get to experience it simply because of the grace and the love and the sacrifice of the Lord Jesus Christ. Listen, you should accept this invitation and we should spread this invitation because God's love is all satisfying. Number two, we, you should accept this invitation and we should spread it because God's judgment is real. God's judgment is real and God wants everyone to be saved from his judgment. And this is why God tells us to surrender to him, to repent. In order to receive God's invitation, you say, this, this sounds like a great invitation. How do I receive it? Well, it's, it's, you don't receive it by just checking off religious checkboxes. You don't receive it by, by tithing and giving money. You don't receive it by showing up to work. I mean, by showing up to church. You don't re- receive it. You don't receive it by just intellectually agreeing. You receive it by surrendering fully to God. That's what faith looks like. In order to receive God's invitation, we have to surrender to God completely. Listen for the connection in verses 7 and 8. We'll go back up to verse 6. It says, seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. This is what the Bible calls repentance. Repentance is hearing God's word and then making a U-turn. 
And, and that's why we often say faith or trusting in Jesus and repentance are two sides of the same coin. They're one motion. It's turning away from sin in order to turn toward and to trust in God. And then look back at verse 7. You see that repentance is total surrender to God, not just in our outward behavior. That's what verse 7 calls our way, but it's also total surrender to God in the deepest parts of our hearts. We begin to allow God to dictate the way we think and what we believe. We allow him to change what we value and the desires that drive us. We forsake our way. We forsake our thoughts. Why? Because we realize that what God says in verses 8 and 9 are true. God says, verse 8, for my thoughts are not your thoughts. Neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as high as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts. God is saying we need to be reprogrammed. Like he has to do a transformational work in us. And there are so many of us who resist this. We think we can come to God on our own terms, but we have to come to God on his terms. We got to tap out. We, we have to say, God, I'm letting go of my own thoughts and my own ways. I'm surrendering to your thoughts and your ways. And the fact of the matter is God is going to require us to do and believe some things that we disagree with. That's what it means for him to be Lord, for him to be king, for him to be creator, and for us to be the creature. He is going to, to, to reveal to us our own sin, and he's going to do it at times when we don't even think anything is necessarily wrong with how we're thinking and how we're acting. But we choose to believe him and his assessment of us. And our culture says to you that you are fine. That because you're a comparatively good person to other people, that you are fine between you and God. It's not true. God says you have to turn. You have to repent because there is something fundamentally wrong with you. It's your sin nature. And God calls us to repent. This invitation brings us to a fork in the road where we have to decide whether we're going to trust him or trust ourselves. And the first step in receiving God's invitation is to humble yourself and acknowledge that God's thoughts are wiser than your thoughts and God's ways are wiser than your ways. Listen, we hear this invitation from God. And it brings us to a fork in the road. It's not something that we can be neutral about. It's something that demands our whole heart, that we turn from our sin and we put our complete trust in Jesus. And Jesus is extending his invitation to anyone and everyone, to you or through you, to other people as we minister the gospel to them. And in order to receive that invitation, we have to surrender to God completely. And if we want to receive that invitation, we got to surrender to God immediately. This is what verse 6 is about. He says, seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. While he may be found. While he is near. The implication is he will not always be near. He will not always be found. As Dr. H.B. Charles said, the gospel is a lifetime guarantee, but it's a limited time offer. Isaiah is saying you don't have forever to accept God's invitation. Like God is saying to us as Christians, the people we love, the people around us, they don't have forever 
to accept God's invitation. Universalism is fake news. It says that since God is a God of love, everybody will go to heaven. It sounds good, but it's not true. Inclusivism is fake news. It says that Jesus will forgive everybody of their sins, even people who reject the gospel. It's not true. Post-mortem salvation is fake news. It says that after you die, God will give you another chance, either through reincarnation or purgatory or some other way. It's not true. The gospel is our only reliable source for knowing how to receive eternal life. And it's reliable because it comes from Jesus himself and it's been revealed and recorded for us in the Bible. And so, yes, God is extending his invitation for you and your loved ones and people from all nations to be saved. But God one day will close that door. I want you to hear me, and more than hearing me, I want you to hear from God's word. Because does it make any sense for us to make up how we think we can get into heaven when God has made it clear to us, he's revealed it to us in his word because he loves us? One day God will close that door on you. One day God will close that door because he's holy and he's righteous and he is faithful to his promises, his promise to save and his promise to judge. Either when you die or when Jesus comes back, whichever one comes first, that door of opportunity is going to close and that moment will be irreversible. There will be no turning back, no strings to pull. You won't be able to finesse your way into heaven. You won't be able to negotiate your way out of the judgment of God. And this is why you got to surrender to God immediately. And for those of us who are believers, this is why we have to spread the gospel urgently. But the problem is if we're honest, there's many of us as Christians, we either hope somebody else will share the gospel with the people around us because we'd rather not be the awkward one, or deep down, if we're honest, we're not really convinced that God is actually going to do what he says he's going to do. We're not actually convinced that God is actually going to make people face the full eternal consequences of their sin. And some of us say, but why can't God just give them mercy? Like, why, why, if, if he is the God of love, how come he can't just give him mercy? How come he can't just, just for, forgive them? And, and C.S. Lewis answers that. He says, in the long run, the answer to all those who object to the doctrine of hell is itself a question. What are you asking God to do? To wipe out their past sins and at all costs to give them a fresh start? But he has done so on Calvary. To forgive them, but they will not be forgiven. To leave them alone? Alas, I'm afraid that is precisely what he does. In the end, there are only two kinds of people, those who say to God, thy will be done, and those to whom God says, thy will be done. God does not force us to accept his invitation, but he pleads with us to accept it while we have the chance. And when we do, verse 7, God says through Isaiah, let him return to the Lord that he may have compassion on him and to our God for what? He will abundantly pardon. He will abundantly pardon. You cannot outsend the grace of God. He will abundantly pardon your sin, past, present, and future. It doesn't matter what you've done or how much you've been shamed or how much guilt you carry. God will forgive you when you turn from your sin and you trust in him. Man, this is the great hope that we have. 
that even though God's judgment is real, he's made a way for you and me to escape his judgment through his free pardon and forgiveness because of what Jesus did for us on the cross. This is why you should accept his invitation and this is why we should spread it. Here's the third reason, because God's word is effective. This is particularly for those of us who are Christians, who struggle to trust God as we spread the gospel. Listen to what God says in verse 10. For as the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return there, but water the earth, making it bring forth and sprout, giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so shall my word be that goes out from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. God is saying, my word, the gospel, the promises that I'm holding out to the people around you, they are true and my word is effective. And we don't always know who God will save. And we don't ever know when God will save, but we always know how God will save. It will be through the proclamation of the gospel and this is why we're not ashamed of the gospel, Romans 1.16, because it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the nations, to the Gentiles. God is going to save some people. And he invites us to scatter seed because the power in the seed doesn't depend on us. It depends on him. And this is what God is going to do next week. This is what God is going to do this week. As you open your mouth and you take a step of faith, God is going to, by his grace, we're praying in faith that he is going to draw and save and transform people by the power of his Holy Spirit through his word. And here's the last reason you should accept this invitation and spread this invitation. And this is where we'll end because God's kingdom is coming. His kingdom is coming. You read through the Bible, you see in Genesis chapter 3 that when sin was introduced into the world, it was like a virus in the system. That was a part of God's judgment that we now live in a fallen world, a, a, a world under a curse where things are broken. They are dysfunctional. They don't work in the way that God originally designed and intended them to work. And we perpetuate that, but we also experience the pain of it. And so yesterday I was with some folks from our church and we did something called prayer parades. I don't know if y'all remember in the beginning of COVID, people were doing those birthday party drive-throughs. You know what I mean? And so we were like, hey, there's people, there's brothers and sisters in our church family that are suffering under just unimaginable grief and challenges and have not been able to connect with the people of God except online. And so we said, hey, let's do some prayer parades. Let's decorate our cars. Let's get some balloons. Let's make some signs and let's go visit some people. And so we did. And so we visited the, this couple who lost their 17-year-old in a tragic accident. And all these people from their church family, people they didn't even know, just stood on their lawn, socially distant, and prayed for God's grace. We visited a man who we thought in prayer got a healed of brain cancer. And now all of a sudden his brain tumor is exploding again in his brain and we're still praying. And we, we showed up to his house outside and we prayed we visited a woman who lost her husband suddenly to COVID and a, one of our young adults who lost his mom. We visited a woman who has congestive heart failure and 
has all these complications, man. Like we were reminded of the curse of disease and depression and injustice and all the things we experience in a fallen world. But here's what Isaiah 55 is promising, that God doesn't just pardon the penalty of sin. One day he's going to reverse all the effects of sin. This is what I mean by his kingdom coming, that Jesus is not done. He rose from the grave and sent the spirit to inaugurate, to kickstart his kingdom, but he's not finished. He is not finished. His kingdom will come and it will spread over the entire earth. And this is why it says in verse 12, for you, for those of you who turn and trust in me, you shall go out in joy. And be led forth in peace. And listen to what happens in creation. The mountains and the hills before you shall break forth in singing. Y'all, we cannot let some mountains and hills celebrate more loudly than we celebrate when we gather as people who've been redeemed. All the trees of the field shall clap their hands. And instead of the thorn shall come up cypress. Instead of depression, there will be joy. Instead of violence... There will be healing and there will be love. And instead of the briar, there shall come up the myrtle and it shall, listen, it shall make a name. It shall make a name for the Lord, an everlasting sign that shall not be cut off. God is going to reveal his glory. He's going to reveal his glory. And the evidence that God is superior, the evidence that he's faithful, the evidence that he is all-powerful, the evidence that Jesus truly is the King of kings and the Lord of lords will be this world, this new heaven and new earth that we will get to experience where everything wrong will be made right, where everything we feel like we've lost will be returned to us a thousandfold, where we will find every deep longing of our hearts satisfied in the presence of God. It's what Jesus calls the renewal of all things. It is the the kingdom of God coming fully and finally to be established on earth. And I don't know about you, but I cannot wait. I cannot wait. I cannot wait to see God face to face and realize that I didn't lose anything and I didn't make the wrong decision by trusting in him. And I want to see you with me. I want to see you there with me. I was a I was thinking about uh, my wife. She got <clears throat> invited to, uh, to this concert, and uh, it, she didn't just get invited to, to a concert. It, it, was a, it was a Beyonce concert. Now, this is like, I might not even be married at this point, all right? So this was like a while ago, you know what I mean? So don't, don't email her, you know, about, about worldliness or whatever. She, you know, it was, it was a while ago. And uh, so a friend of ours uh, invites her to come to this concert but had this, like, hookup. So she got to go to California, her and the friend that invited her, and, and sit on the front row of this concert. Now, again, morally, Beyonce, problem. Artistically, one of the greatest entertainers of all time. She's sitting on the front row. But it wasn't just that. She also got a backstage pass. Now, and here's where the story is relevant. Some of y'all know my wife uh, can sing. So what I told my wife to do, I was like, listen, this is what I want you to do. When you get backstage, when you get to Beyonce, I don't even want you to say, I just want you to start singing. Sing hello. Sing something. Because I'm trying to get that contract. You know what I'm saying? I need you to hold it down for the rest of our, because I'm in ministry. I need you to have a breakout career so that our kids can be taken care of, okay? 
So I'm like, when you see Beyonce, I just want you to start singing. Like, don't hold nothing back. I, I want all the everything. So she gets backstage, and they show her and her friend to this door. Her, her friend gets kind of caught up because her pass, she didn't get her pass out in time. And so, so Ashley ends up at this door, and she opens the door, and it's literally just her and Beyonce just standing in a room. And this is her moment. And you know what she does? The only thing she can figure out to say is, you're just so beautiful. <laughs> everything she thought she was going to say, everything she thought she was going to offer, it all evaporated. Because that's what happens when we're in the presence of, in that instance, musical glory. Can you imagine? Can you imagine what it's going to feel like when that day comes that you've been waiting for for your whole life? When you stand before your Savior face to face, no shame, no guilt because your sin has been covered. You stand before God. And in that moment, everything you thought you were going to say, everything you thought you might have to offer, it will evaporate because you will be in the presence of glory. You will be in the presence of the glory that is revealed in the book of Revelation where all of God's people from every nation, tribe, and tongue are surrounded by, around the throne. And they're saying, worthy is the lamb who was slain. You will be overwhelmed by glory. The only reason my wife was in that room is because a friend invited her. And this is what I want to leave with you. I want you and I to not just have the experience of overwhelming joy in that moment because of what we get to see. But I want you and I to have the joy of knowing that we invited somebody else. Oh, and they got to experience his glory for all of eternity. And that's what I want for you if you're not a follower of Jesus. I want to pray for you now that the Lord would lead you, draw you to trust in him. Let me pray for us. Father, we, we are so thankful, God, for your grace, your mercy, your covenant love that we do not deserve, but you have made available to us. And God, I pray even right now, Lord, that I pray for men and women, boys and girls who are here, who are watching and listening. God, I pray, Lord, that if there is anyone who does not know you, has not turned from their sin and turned towards you to put their trust in Jesus, God, I pray that they would do that now. That right now, Lord God, I pray that they would begin, God, to cry out to you, to call upon your name, to ask you to save them and that you would be faithful to do it. And Lord, I pray for the rest of us who know your love, that we would pray and work this week so that others would come to know your love. And God, we pray for Easter Sunday. Lord, we pray that, Lord, you would do what only you can do. We pray, God, that your spirit would sweep through this place and our locations and homes of people watching that by your spirit through your word, God, that you would transfer people out of the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of your son. You would draw people into your eternal kingdom. We pray this in the matchless and majestic name of Jesus. Amen.